Again, our passage is from Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13 together this morning. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the Word of God. I wonder if you know what the word exposition means. In many ways, this passage from Romans chapter 10, it looks and sounds and feels like an exposition from Deuteronomy chapter 30. It feels like a sermon. Paul seems to have memorized a large portion of Deuteronomy 30, and what we've just read is his exposition of a portion of Deuteronomy 30. In 1851, there was an enormous worldwide event uh, scheduled to happen in London, and a figure by the name of Joseph Paxton, a former gardener, now architect, was commissioned to build the structure for this event. And uh, you, you know what this structure is, but basically what Paxton built was the world's largest greenhouse. Right on the edge of Hyde Park in London, a steel and glass building larger than any cathedral of the day. And it was built for an event, and that event itself was meant to show off the industrial talent of the world, especially the industrial talent of Britain. And it was called the Crystal Palace Exhibition of 1851. Uh, Millions of people visited to see firsthand uh, uh, new new cutting-edge technology, Uh, telescopes, firearms, ceramics, jewels, pianos, luggage, uh, everything, the newest uh, technology. And the Crystal Palace Exhibition, it became known over time as the Crystal Palace Exposition. This is where we get the word uh, expo. And exposition comes from the Latin word exponere, which is to put forward or to expose uh, or to display. And it so became known as the Crystal Palace Exposition, something to be seen, to be noticed. And I think of the Crystal Palace Exposition when I think of expository preaching. Our church was founded by an excellent expository preacher, and expository preaching has marked the life of our church through and through. Expository preaching puts God's Word on display, exposes God's Word, explains God's Word. Uh, All of us take a back seat to the Word of God, including me, uh, covered so with cloth that I might become invisible in comparison to the brightness of God's Word. Expository preaching. Now, Paul is expositing Moses' words in Deuteronomy 30. 
It's almost as if he's preaching a sermon, and his text is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. And in his introduction to this sermon, as we've just read, uh, Paul seems to be illustrating Deuteronomy chapter 30 from uh, another part of Scripture. He real real quickly quotes Leviticus 18. And then uh, down in Paul's uh, conclusion, uh, he pulls from a couple of other passages, Isaiah 28 and Joel chapter 2. But it seems as though a sermon text is something that is happening in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so we need to look at that closely this morning. But what Paul is telling us through this uh, short passage, uh, 5 through 13, is he's telling us that God's story of redemption is a story for lawbreakers that they might call upon the name of Jesus. And what that means is that there is no hope for lawbreakers that rely on anything else. The story of redemption, it's meant for lawbreakers like you and a lawbreaker like me. Paul opens this uh, sermon, as it were, in verse 5 by quoting a passage from Leviticus. Now, what he's doing as he opens the sermon is he's describing a righteousness that comes from the law. Now, a Jew in the Roman congregation, remember this is a letter written to believers uh, in Rome, a Jew in the Roman congregation who believed that righteousness before God could only come by the law, well, that person is going to have a certain message to the individual sitting on the pew next to them. And so, uh, a Jew who, who believes that righteousness before God only comes by the law would look at a Gentile and preach to them this way, saying, look, you don't look like you have the law. And that's a shame. However, if you convert to Judaism, you will receive the law and righteousness will suddenly become an option for you. Do you hear that kind of message that a Jew might preach to a Gentile in the Rome of Paul's day? This kind of preaching, if you can call it that, would be to uh, hold out not uh, the gospel of grace, but rather to hold out to a Gentile the law of Moses. Paul knows that there are many in the Roman congregation who, who simply can't imagine that anyone could be righteous before God without the law. They believe that the that the law of Moses is given by God for this very purpose to lead people to righteousness. And Paul introduces in this sermon in verse 5 an illustration. He turns back to Leviticus 18. This verse seems to indicate that the Jew is right before God by trusting the law as the means to being right before God. The verse says this, Paul uh, only uh, pulls out of Galatians in all of his letters twice, and when he does so, he does so in this, uh, this verse here. This is Leviticus 18. And the verse says this, the verse says, if a person does the laws and statutes of God, they shall live by them. If a person does the law, he shall live by the law. Does God's laws will have life through obedience to those laws. So to keep God's laws perfectly is the ideal. And if you keep God's laws perfectly, then you, well, you'll have eternal life. You know, there's another picture of this uh, uh, Leviticus 18 passage that comes not from Paul. Remember, Paul looks at this verse twice. Uh, But Jesus also looks at Leviticus 18 verse 5 in Matthew's gospel. You remember uh, the passage. 
A wealthy man approaches Jesus, and he uh, says this to Jesus. He says, uh, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And uh, Jesus, uh, without skipping a beat, replies quickly, quoting uh, Leviticus 18.5, and he says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. That's what Jesus says. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Keep the law of God perfectly and you enter life. You'll have eternal life. And all you have to do then is perfectly follow the law of God. Jesus is just as confident as Moses and just as confident as Paul in quoting this uh, passage from Leviticus, follow the law perfectly, achieve eternal life. Well, you know what the problem is, right? The man of uh, Matthew 19, whom Jesus says this to, uh, at the end of that narrative, he just walks away sorrowfully. He understands that he himself is a lawbreaker, and he can't follow the law perfectly. And so that's, uh, that's the problem, you see. Nobody follows the law perfectly. And hasn't Paul already said in Romans chapter 3, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight? And hasn't already uh, said uh, later in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And hasn't Paul already agreed with King David by quoting Psalm 14, uh, none, is, none is righteous, no, not one. So, sure, if a person uh, keeps God's law perfectly, uh, that person will have eternal life. But we're all lawbreakers. Now, if Paul believes this, why do you think he's quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5? It, it seems uh, contrary to his argument of uh, grace. If a person does the laws, he'll live by them. Uh, but everyone's a lawbreaker. Why, Paul, would you begin your uh, introduction to your sermon with Leviticus 18, 5? I think there's at least three reasons why he does this. Of course, he's explaining uh, the righteousness by, that comes by the law. But the first reason he quotes Leviticus 18 is because he's grabbing the attention of the Jews in the congregation. He's inviting them to think just for a moment that law-keeping is possible. Now, now that's not what Moses means in Leviticus 18, 5. And he's going to use Moses himself, Paul is, from Deuteronomy 30 to show that, uh, that there is no salvation that can be had through uh, compliance of the laws. And so first, he's just grabbing the attention of the Jews in the Roman church. But second, uh, he's just said in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's just told them that Jesus is the end of the law, which means that Leviticus 18.5, it works for only one person, and that person is Christ, Romans 10, verse 4. And so the first reason he uses Leviticus 18 is he's grabbing the attention of the Jews, but the second reason is he's highlighting that Jesus is this one perfect person. Moses says if a person keeps God's law perfectly, that person will have eternal life. Well, there you have it. Jesus, he's the end of the law. He is the only law keeper, and there he has eternal life, and he can bestow that life on whoever he wills. So the second reason Paul uses 18.5 from Leviticus is because it highlights that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. But the third reason is this. He's about to make an extraordinary contrast. Moses offers one brief verse about the kind of righteousness that can be had by uh, perfect and perpetual obedience of the law. It's all or nothing. 
Now, do you want to be right before God? Be prepared for protection, but, and this is the contract, or the contrast, if you know you're not perfect, there's another way. If you know you're not perfect, there's another way. There's another kind of righteousness, Paul says, a righteousness that comes by faith. Now, we might ask Paul, I get it, you've grabbed the attention of the Jews. I get it that uh, this obedience to the law works for just one person, Christ, who is the end of the law. And I get it that there is some other way to be right before God. But where do I learn about this other way? And what's remarkable? What's remarkable is Paul says in Leviticus 18.5, uh, it doesn't make sense in, unless we think of the other teaching of Moses. We actually learn about the righteousness by faith through Moses himself. And so in verses 6 and 7, here we, we get to, to, to feel and live in Paul's sermon from Deuteronomy 30. Remember that in Deuteronomy, that, that here we just have a, a lot of talks that are given by Moses right on the edge of the promised land. Do you remember that about Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is filled with these talks in which Moses is speaking to uh, God's people uh, before they enter the promised land, before they go over in conquest. And these are the last words of Moses before he dies. And when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 29, the chapter right before what Paul is expositing, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, we actually have a bit, of a, a bit of a low moment in the talks that Moses gives. Through the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy 29, uh, Moses, he's peering into the future to a time when this uh, mixed collection of people break God's covenant and are judged accordingly. How's that for a downer? That's what Moses is preaching about in Deuteronomy 29 to a people who are just waiting in expectation to cross over into the promised land. Here they are, 40 years after the Exodus, uh, Hebrew people, but also uh, sojourners with the Hebrew people, and then people that they've picked up along the way. So it's this great mixed body right on the edge of the promised land, and, and they're about to go over and conquest and receive that which God has promised. And Moses, well, in Deuteronomy 29, he kills the mood. Moses uses the terminology of covenant, and he says to them, some of you will abandon the covenant of the Lord and chase after other gods. It's almost as if someone in the audience would would say, well, hold that as a possibility, Moses. Let's not be so negative. Sure, let's call it a sliver possibility, but, but Moses won't allow it. And Moses says, when you do abandon the covenant of the Lord, God is going to punish you. And God's going to uproot his people from a land that has been scorched by his judgment. He's going to uproot his own people and send them away off into other nations. And he's going to burn out the land so that nothing can be planted on it and nothing will grow on it. And Moses, he doesn't stop there. Moses goes on and he says, generations are going to follow in wonder at this question. Why did these people's God destroy this land? What caused the heat of his anger? Generations afterwards, people are going to ask about that. And there's going to be people who are living in that burned out land who actually know the story and they'll have an answer for that question. Why did these people's God destroy this land? What caused his heat of anger? And there's going to be someone there 
who answers the question this way? It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the answer. It's because they abandoned God's covenant. Now, we, we should ask, this is Deuteronomy 29, we should ask, well, why the dystopian future, Moses? Well, Deuteronomy 29 ends with the people of Abraham and sojourners and uh, people who have been collected along the way, abandoning God's covenant and bringing hardship on the land, sent into exile. Now, that was Deuteronomy 29. Do you want to know how Deuteronomy 30 begins? It was read to us this morning. It begins like this, and when these things come upon you, and when these things come upon you. Deuteronomy 30 is addressed to people who have been punished. Deuteronomy 30 is addressed to lawbreakers. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is directly addressing the covenant breakers themselves, the lawbreakers who've been sent away into other nations. This isn't the end of the story. Moses has a message for the failures, and it's a message of overwhelming grace. Now, of course, uh, you really uh, come to grips with Deuteronomy 30 when you understand yourself as one of those failures, as a lawbreaker, as a covenant breaker, as one who deserves God's great punishment. But the great thing about Deuteronomy 30 is that it's less about the people who have been scattered as rebels and more about the God who finds these scattered rebels and he brings them by his own power to himself. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is about. Moses says, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. When Paul turns to Deuteronomy 30, he's focusing the attention of the Roman church, and he's especially focusing the attention of the Jews in the Roman church. And what is he focusing their attention on? The unrivaled affection that God has for his people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30 that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Who's doing that work? It's God doing that work. Deuteronomy 30 is such a beautiful passage. It makes sense as you study it yourself that that Paul would go to this passage to to, uh, expose the doctrines of grace even that passage, the passage of God himself being the one who circumcises. No earthly circumcision, but God himself and, and circumcising deeply, circumcising the heart. If that passage from Deuteronomy 30 sounds familiar, uh, it should because Paul's already pointed to that passage in Romans chapter 2. And Paul seems to have been drenched by the gospel of grace in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And just remember in Deuteronomy 30 who God's speaking to. People who know that they're lawbreakers. Moses is preaching the gospel of grace to a lawbreaking people. And he is appealing to them. Look at God. Look at God. He is a God who pursues. He is a God who takes delight in you. He is a God who saves. He is a God who is perfectly faithful to those who know that they are perfectly faithless. He is a God who is a lawkeeper who actually loves you as a lawbreaker. When you come to see yourself as a failure, 
as a loser, as a criminal, as a sinner. Listen, Moses says, listen. Do you hear the call of God? Deuteronomy 30 is a promise specifically for lawbreakers, and it's for those who have been punished and banished in a foreign land, trapped amidst desolation, and yet God comes to them and makes himself known to them. (laughs) These people that the gospel is preached to in Deuteronomy 30, there are people who understand that they themselves are the cause to all of their problems. They understand that they've abandoned God. They understand that they deserve the judgment that they're living in day by day, being exiled. They understand that they were found guilty, and they understand that they're still guilty right now. And they also understand that all of this has been discovered and driven forward by the one true God. And the challenge for you and the challenge for me is to understand that about ourselves, that we are a rebel people, those who have abandoned God, lawbreakers, covenant breakers. Deuteronomy 30 is a picture of all of us. We know that we are faithless. And yet, this lawbreaker, he, or this lawkeeper, he loves lawbreakers like you and I. And he calls out to them to listen to his call and to turn to him with their heart and with their soul. Look where Paul picks up the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul actually explores Deuteronomy 30, but when he hits Deuteronomy 30 verse 11, that's where he quotes... And Moses says, this command that I command to you today, this message of grace that I hold out for you today, it's not too hard for you, and neither is it far off. It's not too hard for you, and neither is it far off. Doesn't that seem so different than the uh, call of the law, obey and then live? It's not too hard for you, neither is it far off, Moses says. God's message of grace to the lawbreaker, it's not a hard message. Moses says it's not too hard for you, it's easy. And Moses says that God himself isn't far from you. He comes so close to you that you might actually hear him. Calvin, commenting on Deuteronomy 30, says it this way, God does not propound to us obscure enigmas to keep our minds in suspense. And God does not torment us with difficulties, but God teaches us with familiarity according to the capacity of our ignorance. He comes close to us, is what Calvin is saying, is what Moses is saying. And in our failure, he meets us with his grace. Deuteronomy 30 is all about God finding exiled lawbreakers in the depths of the world and drawing them to himself through his own power, through the message of grace a promise of his eternal affection. And he doesn't ask the lawbreaker to perform for this promise. Do you hear that? God doesn't ask the lawbreaker to perform for the promise of his affection. It's a message of grace. Moses says, you don't have to look at the sky and cry out, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring this salvation to us? And Moses says, you don't have to gaze uh, longingly across a vast ocean and say, who will go across the sea for us and, and bring this salvation to us that we may hear it and do it? No. 
The message of grace, Moses says, is near to you in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. Well, that's the work of God, coming close to us. And and Paul, he's an excellent expository preacher, and he quotes in verses 6 and 7 this passage from Deuteronomy 30. And what Paul is doing is he's driving home the point that even if you wanted to, you couldn't drag Christ out of heaven for him to save you. And even if you wanted to, you couldn't pull Christ up out of the tomb to compel, compel him to give you salvation. Nobody gets to coerce Jesus. He works according to the will of the Father. So no one can say, I love God so much that I would ascend into heaven and tell him so. I'm so immensely sorry for my law-breaking that I would swim across the ocean or dig down into the underworld to show my sincerity. That's not how God works. Salvation. It's only by grace. It's not possible for you to win God's favor. There's no obedience. There's no law-keeping. There's no self-control or lofty uh, intentions that can save you. Moses preaches grace to a law-breaking people. And in verse 8, Paul calls the message of Moses by a very specific phrase. The message of Moses is the word of faith that we ourselves proclaim to you. Paul is looking in Deuteronomy 30, and he's finding there that, uh, that his message needs to agree with the message of Moses, and it does agree. Moses preached the word of faith, and Paul proclaims that word of faith. And we need to switch gears, because we need to ask ourselves, how does this kind of righteousness happen? And Paul has opened with Leviticus 18 and shown us uh, righteousness by works. And then uh, Paul, in verses 6 and 7, uh, he is digging deeply into Deuteronomy 30, and he's describing to us a righteousness that comes by some other way. But he closes out his sermon in verses 8 through 13, uh, continuing with the theme of grace that was begun by Moses. And he is translating for us what Moses' message of the gospel sounded like. And so in verses 8 and 9, Paul keeps our imagination way back in the time of the conquest so that we might be thinking what the message of Moses may have sounded like. After uh, the law-breaking, after the punishment, standing in a scorched land, uh, subject of God's punishment, the dust uh, lowers, uh, what does that message of the gospel of grace sound like? Well, that message, it comes to us as clearly to our ears and hearts as it did to the lawbreakers then. And Paul says it sounds a lot like this. You ready? You lawbreakers, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I do hope that you don't find that to be a message that is novel. It's not novel. It's the message that Moses held out to the people. It's the message that Moses knew would be held out to the people after experiencing God's judgment for having abandoned the covenant. This is the message of salvation. It's unchangeable. It's true today as it was true then. 
Now, you can say what you will about the statement of verse 9, but you have to see that what Paul is doing is he's contrasting uh, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart as the very opposite thing of work. Confessing with your uh, mouth, believing with your heart, in Paul's mind, this is utterly different than work. This isn't an effort of ascending or descending. It's different. This is not an effort of pursuing the law. It's different. It's not a matter of being born into the right family or into the right culture. It's different. The righteousness that comes by faith is a righteousness that's centered, centered upon receiving the work of Jesus in your place. Paul places a profession of faith in Jesus at the very center of all of Moses' expectations for the good of the 40-year wilderness wanderers. Their journey, long, tiresome, hard, that journey, according to Moses, well, it points to Jesus. Every good and worthwhile expectation of Moses for his people was embodied by Jesus. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. Moses was born in Egypt, raised by Egyptian royalty, exiled in Midian, called out of the, bo- out of the burning bush, challenged Pharaoh, received the law, led the people, endured rebellion, battled neighbors, and preached God's word. Why? So that Jesus would be made known. That's why. So that the work of Jesus would be made known. Everything about Moses' personal life Everything about his place in world history was and is about Jesus. Moses is not a preacher of the law. He is a preacher of grace. Now, Paul, he really believes this, but we need to believe this as well. If the message of Moses is obey the law for salvation, we have all kinds of problems, but Moses' message isn't obey the law for salvation. Moses' message is similar to that of Isaiah, or it might be better to say Isaiah's message is Moses' message. Paul, uh, here at the end, he uh, quotes Isaiah 28 for the second time. Isaiah 28 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. And then right here in verse 11, Paul repeats it. And he repeats just the last phrase of the quote. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah is writing... 800 years after Moses, and he also maintains that salvation is not by works but belief in Jesus. And not only this, Paul, he he quotes, he closes out a sermon by quoting Joel, writing nearly a thousand years after Moses, and uh, Joel also agrees with Moses. In verse 13, Paul uh, quotes uh, a passage in which uh, Joel says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's exactly the message of Moses. That's the message that lawbreakers, they need to hear. And it means that the story of redemption is actually meant for lawbreakers who call on the name of Jesus. Now, practically speaking, let me conclude here. This actually is what makes Christianity such a hard sell and such an easy sell at the same time. Let me me tell you what I mean by that. Christianity, well... It's a hard sell because everything that it offers can only be received by grace, and we don't like that. It means that there's no room for even the smallest uh, amount of self-praise. 
Christianity never allows room for boasting. Uh, Christianity never leaves room for denigrating others. Uh, Everything that God offers only comes by grace. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.3 that God has done what the law could not do because we are incapacitated by the law. We're failures before the law. But God sends to us his son to be the success that we desire. And Paul says at the very end of chapter 9 that Jesus is himself the end of the law. The entire ministry of the priests and the prophets point to Jesus, and Jesus is God's perfect lawkeeper. But this is a problem, isn't it? Because it means that Christians are never given room to boast, except boasting in Christ Jesus. Now, that's hard, because we're performance-oriented. And we want to have some way of being able to say that we're better than someone else. Or that God doesn't have to work quite as hard for me because I have a greater semblance of morals than most people I know. And so for that reason, Christianity, it's a hard sell because it allows you to boast uh, none at all. But let me tell you also why Christianity is an easy sell. It's an easy sell for this reason. If you understand yourself as hopelessly desperate... If you understand yourself as unable to find peace and contentment through your own efforts, or if you've tried every other religion and it hasn't seemed to have delivered to you, but instead only highlighted the fact that you're a failure, well, Christianity, for you, it ought to be an easy sell. One uh, British uh, novelist and follower of Christ, uh, Francis Spufford, says this. He says that we're the kind of people who discover new immoralities at the same speed that we abolish old ones. (laughs) I love that. If you know that about yourself, that you discover new immoralities at the same speed that you abolish your old immoralities, well, Christianity, it's an easy sell for you. Because the Bible says that you're a sinner and that there's nothing that you can do to deserve God's divine attention. But God says that I will come close to you with my understanding grace. God says that the most extraordinary possession to behold, I'm actually going to lay at your lap. And you who understand that you are a lawbreaker and that you are immoral and that you are a sinner who is desperately lost in their sin, well, you understand this because you understand that it could be no other way. God has to lay it before your lap. You'll never achieve it on your own. And so when introduced to Christ, this person, uh, begin, or when, uh, this person begins to see Christ growing larger and larger before their very eyes as the instrument of God's grace, the worker who does all of the perfect work that they couldn't do. And so Christianity is a hard sell, especially for the arrogant, but Christianity is an easy sell for people who know that they are desperate before God. Now, I've played a little bit of a trick on you as I close this sermon. I opened the sermon with a picture of that 1851 Crystal Palace exposition, and I used that picture to illustrate uh, the value of expository preaching, a preaching that just uh, explains and unfolds uh, the Word of God, as Paul does with Deuteronomy 30. But now, I want you to think of that massive glass and steel space as a picture of our church. Uh, Christians here on earth uh, are here on earth in order to exposit Scripture and explain the doctrine of grace. And that we do that best when we hold out to others this message of salvation uh, alone through faith and no other name but by Jesus. We do that best, well, when we're transparent. 
The great exposition is here on earth, not for the latest in British technology. This great looming glass building is here so that the world might see the inner workings of the story of redemption, so that all can see the work of Jesus for our salvation. The plan of God and the story of redemption, it's a cutaway 3D model that reveals the insides of that plan. Jesus serving as the end of the law for lawbreakers. That's who we are, people of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a church with glass walls to explain the will of God brought about through the work of Jesus. And we know that as a church we display God's grace imperfectly, sometimes stammering, sometimes treating our holiness lightly, sometimes not loving others as we should, sometimes fogging up the glass of this crystal palace such that God's grace can be hard to see. I want us to acknowledge that as a church. But I want us also as a church to know this, that the gospel of grace, it's meant for lawbreakers and failures and sinners And they and we have no other salvation than believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And we, as a body of people, have an opportunity to be a large structure standing above the world with glass walls and the center of that structure being uh, the work of God's purposes in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to exposit. That's what we want the world to see. Now, if you've not professed faith in Jesus with your mouth or in your heart, We're glad that you're here this morning. We hope that this has been a place in which the glass is well cleaned and the story of redemption is exposited clearly. God is near to you this morning, but there is nothing that you can do to earn his favor, to earn his affection, but it's near to you. And God's promises are made sure as you proclaim the name of Jesus professing with your mouth and your heart that he is Lord. And my brothers and sisters of covenant, would you uh, help me be that church, glass walls showing forth the internal counsel of God's story of redemption in the perfect work of Jesus. May that be the exposition of this place to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would do with us as you see fit as a corporate body, that we would be a body that holds out Jesus Christ as the great worker of salvation. Father, would you bring lawbreakers to us that they might hear your grace in the gospel. And Heavenly Father, might you humble us gently that we would be a people who exposit not ourselves, but your story of redemption worked out in Christ Jesus for us through faith in him. We thank you in his name. Amen.